Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Something You Should Know, how to effectively stop robocalls for free. Then the amazing benefits of breathing the right way. And most of us breathe all wrong. For instance, vast majority of people are breathing too much. And you think, well, how can breathing too much be a problem? I'm getting more oxygen into my body. The opposite is happening. We're actually inhibiting circulation throughout our body. Also, if you have old VHS tapes, I'll tell you what to do with them and do it soon. Plus, how to make better decisions and understanding the difference between a good decision and a bad one. One of the very tough things is what is a bad decision? It's routinely mistaken to be that you got a bad outcome. You could have made what was a great investment in a stock and it dropped. That doesn't mean you made a poor decision. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey, welcome to Something You Should Know. It's hard for me to imagine anybody who likes getting robocalls. I haven't met anyone who said, oh yeah, I love those when I get those calls. And even if you are on the do not call list, you still probably get robocalls. In fact, well over 20% of all phone calls in the U.S. are robocalls. It is a real problem. Robocalls are often used by scammers, and complaints about them have been pouring into the Federal Trade Commission. So a few years ago, the Federal Trade Commission had a contest for whoever could come up with the technology to block robocalls. 
And software engineer Aaron Foss won the prize with his program, Nomo Robo. I interviewed him back some time ago about this, and I use it. It is terrific, and it is absolutely free for landlines. I, I think there's a, there's a small fee for uh, mobile phones. I don't get that many robocalls on my cell phone, but, but I was getting a lot of robocalls on my landline, and I don't get them anymore. The Federal Trade Commission awarded Aaron the $50,000 prize, and Nomo Robo has been endorsed by many large news organizations, and according to their website, they have, since, <laughs> since it started, they have stopped over 1,600,000,000 robocalls. To sign up, just go to Nomo, N-O-M-O, Robo, R-O-B-O, NomoRobo.com. And follow the directions. And that is something you should know. Okay, now stick with me here because you might think they're going to talk about breathing? How exciting can that be? Well, I'm telling you, it is actually really exciting. And think about it you breathe all the time. So, what if you're doing it wrong? Because you probably are. And what could breathing better do for you? And it turns out a lot. James Nestor is a journalist who investigated how we breathe, and what he discovered is really fascinating. James is author of a book called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. Hi, James. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So what's the premise here? Why did you investigate breathing? I mean, what's to investigate? What, what is the problem? So a freediver told me this years and years ago. Freedivers are these people who have trained themselves to take a single breath of air and dive down 300, 400 feet. No tanks, no anything, no fins, and come back to the surface. So she told me, she said, there are as many ways to breathe as there are foods to eat. And just as we eat different foods to be able to allow our bodies to do different things, we can use breathing in the same way. We can use it to straighten scoliotic spines. That's true. We can use it to help heal the symptoms of autoimmune problems. That's true. Asthma, snoring, sleep apnea, on and on and on. It all sounded like pseudoscience to me, but I was intrigued enough to spend a few years in labs talking to leaders in the field to find out what she told me. So much of it was actually true. Well, what about just plain old every day here I am sitting here talking to you and I'm breathing while we're talking kind of breathing? So, for instance, the vast majority of people are breathing too much, at least at some time during the day, or for some people, for about 25% of the population, all the time. And you think, well, how can breathing too much be a problem? I'm getting more oxygen into my body. The opposite is happening. When we breathe too much, we're actually inhibiting circulation throughout our body. This is such a contrarian concept. It took me months of digging into the science to understand it, but that is absolutely true. Okay, so what is proper breathing? I mean, demonstrate or explain, what, how do we breathe better? So the best way to breathe that anyone can practice right now is to take in a breath, about five to six seconds, slowly through the nose, and exhale that same amount of time. 
When we do this, we increase our circulation. We greatly decrease the burden on the heart by sucking in all that blood into our thoracic cavity when we inhale and letting that blood go out through the rest of our body when we exhale. And we allow the systems in our body to enter a state of coherence where everything works at peak efficiency. And that's where you want to be. So I realize this isn't very realistic for people to walk around and try to breathe six, five times a minute. But if you can do that at least part of the time, your body can be become better acclimated to breathe this way unconsciously the rest of the time. And that's really the key. And so, uh, so walk me through that again. So I breathe in for six seconds. Five to six seconds. Do not stress about, oh my God, I was a half a second off. That's not the point. So breathe in. Through my nose. Uh, you, you know what? Put your hand over your heart when you're doing this. Okay. We'll, we'll try a little exercise here. I'm not a breathing therapist, but I picked up a few tricks along the way. So breathe in to a count of about one, two, three, four, five, and out. One, two, three, four, five. When you breathe in, you're going to feel your heart rate slightly increase. When you breathe out, you're going to feel your heart rate slightly decrease. So breathing in is a sympathetic response. It stimulates us. Breathing out is a relaxation, parasympathetic response. So it relaxes us. So this is how the body stays balanced. And if ever you want to become more relaxed, you extend those exhales. If you want a little pump of energy, you extend those inhales. So these are the dials that we have to take control of how our, our heart is beating and so how so many of our other organs are functioning just by the ways in which we inhale and exhale. And just to be clear, we're exhaling and inhaling through the nose? Always through the nose, yes. I know a lot of people are going to say, I can't breathe through my nose. I have allergies. I have other problems. you got to find a way of breathing through your nose. And that's, that's really the number one thing here. If a sink is clogged in your house, you find a way of cleaning it out as soon as possible. The nose has to be considered the same thing. So, why? What's so I, special? I mean, I can breathe through my mouth. So why, why do I, I have another sink <laughs> that I can breathe through? Why do I need to clean the drain out of my nose? Your, your mouth is a secondary device in, in which you can breathe if something wrong happens to your nose. We, we've developed two channels for a reason. It increases our chances of survival. But breathing through the nose is going to filter air. It is going to heat air. It is going to humidify air. It's going to condition that air so when it enters our lungs, it enters at our body's temperature. And that air can be processed so much more efficiently that way. So we're going to increase our oxygenation with each breath about 20% by just breathing through our nose. We're also going to be increasing our nitric oxide, which is this wondrous molecule, which is now being used to treat people with severe problems um, due to COVID. But we produce our own nitric oxide in our nasal cavities. So just by breathing through the nose, you can lower your blood pressure. You can increase your respiratory health. And you can help expand your lungs and lung capacity. What else are we doing wrong when we breathe? Uh, uh, what uh, Different situations, different times of the day. What, what, what else are we messing up that we could fix? So if you go to a gym, chances are you're going to see a lot of people on treadmills just huffing and puffing, breathing as hard as they can through their mouths, believing that they're getting more oxygen, they're getting more CO2 out of their bodies, that this is a more efficient way of breathing. But it is not. 
So breathing this much, just as I mentioned before, is actually going to decrease the circulation. And you can see this for yourself by sitting down in a chair and huffing and puffing for about a minute, and you're going to feel some tingling in your fingers and some tingling in your toes, and maybe you'll feel lightheaded. That's because you're getting less circulation to those areas. So it turns out that this happens not only when we're at a gym or exercising, but asthmatics, people who suffer from anxiety, people who suffer from depression, other fear-based disorders, traditionally inhale and exhale far too much. They're breathing far too much. And if they're able to slow down their breathing and get their blood gases in a better balance, so many of these symptoms um, have been showed to either uh, decrease slightly or decrease on a, on a massive level. And this is what psychiatrists and other scientists have shown. When you're exercising, you commonly hear the phrase, I'm out of breath. And what you do to compensate for being out of breath is to breathe more. For sure. And, and so I'm not saying that, you know, go out and jog and try to not breathe as long as possible. I'm saying that we need to condition our bodies to breathe along with our metabolic needs which is almost always breathing less, at least in our culture. I know this because I spent days and days in a Stanford study in which my nose was blocked for 10 days and uh, I could only breathe through my mouth. And then I repeated that test in which I tried to only breathe through my nose and we compared data sets and it was transformative just breathing through the nose. And along the way, I was exercising with a pulse oximeter on my finger that showed me my, my O2 sets in my blood. And I was shocked to find that by breathing extremely slowly, even though I felt extremely out of breath, I had plenty of oxygen in my blood, 97%. What I'm responding to is an increase of carbon dioxide. That's what triggers the need to breathe. And by having a better balance of CO2 and O2, we're going to be able to metabolize oxygen so much better. And that's that's the key. O, CO2 gets this really bad rap because it's causing climate change and acidity in the oceans and all that's true. But our bodies can benefit from having a proper balance of CO2 and O2. And that usually means for most people, like having more CO2 in your body. And you get that by breathing less. You get that by breathing less. Because if I'm breathing right now, I'm off gassing tons more CO2, right? And if I were to, to calculate how much CO2 I had in, in my exhaled breath, it'd probably be down to four and a half, four, four percent. But by breathing slowly, you're allowing that air to exhale more slowly. So you're able to balance that CO2 and O2 in your lungs. And that's what we really want because it's CO2 that is a, has a massive vasodilation properties throughout our bodies. It increases circulation. So it makes me wonder why, like, when people are sick, you know, and the, the, the medics come, the first thing they do is strap an oxygen mask on the face to get more oxygen in. These, these are for sick people. These people do not have the proper gas exchange in their lungs, so they need oxygen. For a healthy person who has blood sats of about 92 to 93%, up to 99 or 100%, you don't need more oxygen. What you need is a proper balance of CO2 and oxygen, which is why if at an airport or if you're walking down the street and you see an oxygen bar and they're selling this as, 
you can get more oxygen into your body and increase your health, it is complete BS. What you're doing is you may be increasing your oxygenation of your blood one or 2%, but that oxygen has nowhere to go unless you have a proper balance of CO2. And this is something almost everybody gets wrong. And we've known this for over a hundred years, but it's still not widely known or acknowledged. What about when you're sleeping, though, when you're not aware of how you're breathing? You're just breathing to stay alive because you're off in dreamland. So uh, that, it seems like th- that would be difficult to control. Well, of, co- of course, because most breathing is, is unconscious. But, but if you think about breathing and how poorly we're breathing during our sleep now, where 50% of the population snores. About a quarter of the population is suffering from asphyxia every night from sleep apnea. We're choking on ourselves so severely that our blood O2 is going down, you know, into the 80s. That is completely bad news. So that has to be fixed. CPAPs help. They they pump air into into your into your lungs and allow you to exhale. Those help. But what I've found is even though we can't control the rate at which we're breathing, we can control the pathway. And I worked with a Stanford therapist who found that using a teeny piece of tape and putting that tape on your lips, I'm not talking about a fat strip of duct tape across your mouth, a teeny piece of tape just to train your mouth shut at night can have a very powerful effect with snoring. And I've had several people who have done this and found that they no longer snore. And I found that in in the Stanford study as well, when I had forced mouth breathing, I immediately started snoring and I immediately had sleep apnea. The day I started breathing through my nose and taping my mouth, that teeny piece of tape, snoring disappeared, sleep apnea disappeared. So you're saying to tape your mouth shut. Well, why just use a teeny piece of tape then? Why not just tape your mouth shut? Because it's going to make people extremely paranoid to the, the idea that their entire mouth is shut and if, if they suddenly panic, they can't rip it off. And that's where, don't go on YouTube and look this stuff up because there's a bunch of bozos who are using seven pieces of tape to tape their entire jaw shut. All you need is this teeny piece of tape so at any time in the night that you get paranoid or you freak out, you can just by, by will, by opening your lips a little bit, that tape comes off. So you want a very light tape. I know this seems totally crazy until I I talked to Dr. Mark Berheny, who studied this stuff for decades and has seen correlations, direct correlations between ADHD and mouth breathing, especially at night. And he has had a lot of success helping patients to tape their mouths at night and, and to improve their symptoms. When you did it, or when whatever the research says, how long do you have to tape it before you train yourself so you don't have to tape it? This is not fun, people, especially at the beginning, which is why I think a lot of people are going to be turned off to it. But after I heard this from a Stanford therapist, she, she was a mouth breather, mouth breathed at night, snored, all of the above, had been doing it for decades. She was slated for surgery said, oh, I'm going to try to do this another way. And she found that the more we use the nose, the more easily it's going to be to breathe through the nose. It responds just like any other muscle. So it took her about a week to get used to it. And it took me about a week as well. And uh, it's not fun. You wake up, you're like, uh, you, you know, you feel like you're some hostage in some awful foreign country. But I have found just like anything else, you get used to it after a while. And, you know, it's been a year and a half since I used it. 
and I use it every night. And I know that this sounds like quackery until you really dig into the science and the people who have studied this stuff and really seen some profound changes from it. I'm talking with James Nestor. He is a journalist and he's author of the book Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, James, I remember several years ago, there was a big campaign about those Breathe Right strips, and everybody was using them, and football players were using them, and I, don't, I still see them at the store. I don't hear much about them anymore. What, what does the science say? Yeah, well, that's, that's another problem, and there's this, this diagnostic test you can do. It's called the Cottles Maneuver. So, if you take your fingers right now, and you place them right on both sides of your nostrils, and you stretch those nostrils out, if you can breathe better that way, there's a good chance that there's something wrong with your nostrils. Either they're too closed or they're too thin so they collapse inward every time you take a breath in. So we know that those breathe right strips really, really work. And there, there are surgical interventions that will do this for you so you don't need to use those strips. The point is to get air freely into your body and out of it without any struggle. Snoring is not natural. It's not good for us. It causes neurological disorders. Some metabolic disorders have been associated with it. And sleep apnea is even worse. Choking on yourself and suffering that that fear and stress every night is so bad for us. And it causes everything from autoimmune disease to, to heart conditions. So you have to find a way to be able to let your body naturally do what it's designed to do. That's to easily take breath in and easily get it out. On a practical day-to-day level of, of the the count of six in, the count of six. I mean, you and I have been talking here for 20 minutes. You haven't done that once. Um, maybe you'll do it when we're, we're done. But, I mean, how do you incorporate that into your day? So you, you incorporate it into your day because think of how much time your, your mouth is shut and you're stressing out and reading emails and, and doing other stuff. So uh, I have timers, which, which work for me, to remind myself when I'm spending an hour and a half chugging through emails to breathe in a healthy way. And sometimes I put on a pulse oximeter just to watch my O2 levels. But again, the, the idea here isn't to become a neurotic about this. It's to condition your body to be able to breathe this way all the time automatically. And creating habits can take three weeks, four weeks, even five weeks. With breathing, it may even take longer. But the benefits are, are so many once you get the stuff down. And I've seen people absolutely transform by adopting just simple, healthy 
breathing habits. And this has been confirmed in, in various studies. You, uh, you started the, the conversation talking about this diver that goes down and then comes back <laughs> up. Don't they breathe through their mouth? Don't divers mouth breathe? They have to, right? Sure. So if you, talk, if you think about it, we take 25,000 breaths a day. So even if we're taking 500 of those breaths or even 1,000 of those breaths through our mouth, it's not going to make that much of a difference. So you, if you look at Steph Curry playing basketball, right before he dunks, he goes, <gasps> takes this huge mouth breath. That one breath out of 25,000 breaths is not going to be affecting him. So divers do the same thing. Right before they dive, they take a huge mouth breath. But if you see any of these people, and I hung out with hundreds of them at this competition, when they're walking around for almost 24 other hours of the day, they are nasally breathing. And this is something that they adamantly believe in because they know the benefits of it. So don't worry about laughing. Don't worry about talking on occasion, breathing through your mouth that way. The point is that your habits should should circle around nasal breathing as often as possible. Doesn't it make you wonder why so many of us are not breathing correctly? I mean, almost everybody's not breathing correctly. It seems that unless you train yourself to do it, the default is to do it incorrectly. Well, yeah, you know, for a long time, this was just considered a psychological problem, like a mental hang-up. And, and that's what I thought it was when I was first writing this book, until I met some biological anthropologist who showed me how drastically the human skull has changed, especially over the past 400 years. So for many of us, even if we want to breathe correctly, especially at night, we cannot because of this morphological change that has occurred. And it's affected the vast majority of people on the planet right now. It's certainly affected me. And what is this change in the skull? So she took it, I'll, I'll use a little story here. She gave me a modern skull. She said, look at its teeth. And its teeth were very crooked, just like mine were as, as a kid. And then she showed me a skull that was 500 years old. And it had perfectly straight teeth. Then she showed me a skull that was 5,000 years old, perfectly straight teeth. 15,000 years old, straight teeth, 50,000 years old, straight teeth, on back. So right now, humans are the only animals in the animal kingdom that have chronically crooked teeth. 90% of us have crooked teeth. And we have crooked teeth because our mouths have grown so small. And when you have a mouth that's so small, what happens? To get teeth to grow in straight, you have to either extract them or they're going to grow in crooked. Well, what else is a problem with having a mouth too small? It's because your airway is too small as well. So a smaller mouth means a smaller airway, which means it's harder to get breath in and out. And this was a story I had no idea existed. I'd always learned that evolution was this, you know, line forward of progress, survival of the fittest. That is not true. Evolution means change. And right now, humans have changed for the worse in regards to breathing. I wonder why. The main reason is industrial food. And it doesn't have to do so much with vitamins and minerals, as many people think, but it is chewing stress. If we don't chew a lot, those bones and those muscles in our face never quite grow right and our mouths grow too small. So this starts once you're in adulthood, you know, you're, you're pretty hosed. You're stuck with what you have. You can change it a bit and surgical interventions can definitely help. But this is especially important when you're an infant. 
and when you're a kid to be chewing a lot. And they've done tons of studies showing infants who were breastfed versus infants who were bottle fed. Breastfeeding requires a ton of stress and it pushes the mouth and the face outward. And those infants will have a significantly decreased chance of snoring and having other breathing problems because of that chewing stress early on. And you look at bottle feeding now, and most kids are bottle fed after six months. Infants just up until 300, 400 years ago were breastfed at least two years, sometimes much longer than that. Well, it, when you think about it, it's kind of interesting that, that everybody seems to have some sort of breathing problem or they're stuffed up because of their allergies or they snore. or it, it, This seems to be a pretty pervasive problem. So when I first heard this, it completely blew my mind because I, I had always understood that crooked teeth are genetic. But then this anthropologist said, well, how were your parents' teeth? I was like, well, huh, they were a lot better than mine. Then you know, look at pictures of my grandparents. Their teeth were better than mine as well. So when, when you think about it, it's crooked teeth right now. And even on the National Institutes of Health website, they say the causes of crooked teeth are genetic or caused by some problems with, associated with tumors. Food and chewing aren't mentioned anywhere, even though we know there's a uh, researcher named Dr. Robert Corcini who studied this stuff for 30 years, 250 publications on this stuff, pretty obsessive. And he found, without a doubt, chewing is directly correlated to mouth size and to breathing health. So it's this hidden story that's been in front of us the whole time that only a few researchers have been looking at. So it's pretty thrilling to dig into that and understand why I've had so many problems and why so many other people have had similar problems. Well, we all breathe, and it's so amazing how many of us have trouble breathing, and it's great to get some advice on, on how to do it right. James Nestor has been my guest. He's a journalist and author of the book Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, James. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. All day long, you make decisions. And you just make them without giving a whole lot of thought to the process of how you make them. And in most cases, it probably doesn't matter much. But when it comes to those big decisions in life, how you make them can matter a lot. Ralph Keeney knows a lot about this. He's been studying and teaching decision-making at Duke University and the University of Southern California, and he is author of the book, Give Yourself a Nudge, 
helping smart people make smarter personal and business decisions. He's here to discuss how we can all make better decisions as we travel through life. Hey, Ralph. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. My guess is that people think they're pretty good at making decisions. You know, after all, the decisions I've made have got me this far in life. So I must do it okay. And and I imagine most people think that, so they don't give a lot of thought to the process they go through to make those decisions. You're right. People don't think about their decision-making. And I think one of the reasons is we all learned it from a very early age and picked up habits over time. In fact, learned is the wrong word. We just picked up a bunch of habits, and that's what we do. So it's not something we ever thought about much. And yet those decisions we make are the things that shape our life, that that determine which road in life we take. One of the things about decisions is it's the only purposeful way that you can influence anything in your life. Everything else just happens to you. So your decisions represent the power that you have to influence the quality of your life. And a metaphor that I use for that is the one you all know is a person walking down a path, and when they come to forks on that path, they can choose to go either way, and that's a decision. And imagine if you were on your life path and you start walking, and there are no forks. So you keep walking a little further, and there are no forks. All you can do is continue on that path, and then all of a sudden, your path ends. That would be a phenomenally disappointing life, I think. You really want those decisions there because, again, that's the only way you can influence your life purposefully. And so do people, when they make decisions, typically follow a similar path or when they do make decisions or does everybody kind of do it their own way? Well, everybody's a little bit distinctive, but I think the standard way that happens is people don't like decisions. If one loses their place of employment, one has a problem. What should I do about that? And uh, if one gets sick, one has a problem. What should I do? And So those are problems, and people don't want them. And the way people we deal with them typically is the first stage is, well, I'd like to figure out how I can get rid of this problem, and the sooner the better. So they start thinking about an alternative that might work. And they come up with one, and then they think, well, is that good enough? And if it's good enough, it likely gets implemented. There isn't the thinking that goes, is there a better alternative or another one? And plus, thinking of alternatives first is a backwards way to make decisions because it's reactive. The problem occurred. You have to address it. And it's backwards because you're choosing alternatives before you really carefully understand all that you want to achieve. And how can you possibly create good alternatives if you don't know what you want those alternatives to achieve? Okay, well, I, I understand that. So you're basically you're saying that if, for example, you want to get a job, before you start choosing which company to go work for, you first have to figure out what it is you want from that job. Is it a higher salary? Is it a better position? And only when you know that, then do you make a decision about where to work. But 
today, I think especially, people hear the idea of go with your gut. Just follow your gut. Your gut will tell you, your gut will tell you what to do. I imagine you probably don't think that's a really great idea, but that, that's what a lot of people do. Yes, they do. And that's a standard thing that's said, and I think it does mean some different things to different people. But for an important decision, I would rather get information that was relevant to it, create a set of good alternatives for it, and give some thought to the better one there, and basically educate myself. And then I might say, well, based on all my education and knowledge about this decision, it suggests that I choose alternative A. So if you have a decision to make, and you yes. have all your objectives, and, and you, I guess you prioritize them to some degree, you figure out which are the important ones and which aren't, I mean, it, this sounds a little exhausting, um, so I guess this is really just for big, big decisions. Isn't so exhausting if you learn some of these habits. I mean, there are kind of three key things that really nudge you to make better decisions. One, what do you hope to achieve by making the decision? Two, what are some good alternatives? And three, are there any better decisions that I could face? And I call those decision opportunities. And it's not difficult to learn how to do these, and they can become very natural. I could give us a simple example that I think everyone would understand of why identifying one objective would have avoided a very bad decision. It's short, but suppose somebody important is coming to your town or city, uh, and they work for the company you work for, and they'd like to have dinner with you. So you arrange a dinner at a close place to where they're staying. You think that's important, has excellent food, and kind of a, a local flavor. So you choose a restaurant. They come, and you go there. And it's a terrible evening. And the reason was it was too noisy, and you wanted to talk to them, and they wanted to talk to you. Had you just thought about what would I like to achieve by having this dinner, and you thought of that one additional objective, I'd like to have a good conversation, there's no way you would have chosen that restaurant. So that isn't really sophisticated thinking or anything. It's just stopping and thinking for a moment. And that's a nudge that in this case would have avoided a very poor decision. And it's not the biggest decision of life, but it was pretty relevant if this person was relevant. So I like that example. And although I can't think of a specific time in my life, I know I've had that feeling of picking the wrong restaurant for something like that. Oh, if I, why didn't I think about the noise? Why didn't I? I think everybody's done that, and you're right. Yeah, if you, if you had thought about it ahead of time, you, you wouldn't have picked that restaurant, but you didn't think to think about it. That's right, and it should be natural for something like that. You're going to spend maybe two and a half hours of your uh, near-term life with somebody that's important that you'd like to know, and uh, so to think maybe five minutes about it, is not unreasonable. It can really enhance the quality of two and a half hours for each of you. Now, you don't want to be a slave to those types of ideas, but th that's a decision I consider worthy of thought. Not anxiety and everything, but just a little bit of thought can make a big difference.
One of the one of the traps I think people fall into when they're making a decision, and I know I've done this too, where you're you're making a decision and you think you're going to go through the process of looking at alternatives and which which is the better way to go when really you've pretty much decided which is the better way to go. You're not real you're you're going through the motions of looking at alternatives, but I think in in general you're looking for ways to justify the decision you've already made. Yeah, I think there are many cases where that happens. One of the things that I say to many people is once you've created one alternative, especially when it's been a little difficult, then you've got one, so spend a little more time to create two or three more. And if you create three more, so you have four, probably the chance that first one is best is no more than half. And Again, that can be a big, big uh, nudge to make a better decision because if you create a better alternative than those currently available, you're going to make a better decision based on that one insight. And then you, you get more skilled at doing that and you challenge yourself to create alternatives. There's a bunch of different techniques to stimulate your thought process that will help you create those alternatives. For example... What you do is you use each of your objectives for the decision to generate alternatives. The standard advice for creating alternatives that are innovative and good is think outside the box. You've heard it. Everyone has. And I agree with the spirit of that, but outside the box is everywhere else, and there's no guidance for where to look for alternatives. So you're not very effective. Well, Once you've laid out all your objectives for the decision, the only alternatives you care about are those that are going to contribute to that set of objectives. So those basically characterize the region where you should be thinking. I call that a much larger right-sized box, correct-sized box. And you can create alternatives that address one objective well. And then you kind of combine some of those and do thinking to meet two or three of the objectives. And on important problems, there are more than a few. And so that's how you create the alternatives. And then once you've got a rich set of alternatives, it's pretty easy to get rid of the bad ones. It's easier to get rid of bad ones than it is to choose the best. Something that uh, I heard many years ago that, I, that has always stuck with me about decisions uh, is when you make a decision, and, and, you know, I'm thinking, for example, you know, what color to paint the wall or what kind of carpet to buy or uh, you know, something along those lines. And uh-huh. it's not so much the decision as it is your commitment to the one you make. That, that you can't just keep fretting about, oh, maybe we should have gotten gone with a little lighter color, and oh, I don't know. and That, that you make a decision, commit to it, and move on. Well, I think you're right, and your comment that it might not matter too much is, I think, the same concept I was saying. If you get rid of the poor alternatives, then the ones that remain are those where the differences don't matter too much and that you think you didn't have the perfect wall coloring. Whatever that is, probably very few of us have the perfect wall covering color. But we have a pretty good one. And 
that's good enough for that decision because you don't want to spend all your life making decisions because life is kind of the enjoyment and the experience and the contributions you make because of the time you have and the position you're in because of the decisions you did make. You know what's interesting is that everyone can think of bad decisions they have made because you can't get very far in life without making some bad decisions. And yet, what you said at the beginning... People think they're better decision makers than 85% of the population. So there's kind of a disconnect there that if you're a bad decision maker and you have made a lot of bad decisions that probably you could have done a better job at, why do you think you're so good at it? One of the very tough things is what is a bad decision? And it's routinely uh, mistaken to be that you got a bad outcome. You could have made what was a great investment in a stock. You checked everything you could. You checked with many people. It was a great thing to do. You bought the stock, and it dropped. That doesn't mean you made a poor decision because you used the best information. You maybe said you want, before you made it, there's a 1% chance the stock drops, and if it drops, I will lose 20% of my funds. There's a 99% chance it will go up, and let's say you make 20%. Again, the same amount. That would be a great decision. Most people would say if that's really the way it was, that would I would take that decision. And the fact that you lost was just unlucky. You didn't control that. All decisions that you make have a chance for something to go wrong and pretty wrong. If you, in normal situations, decided to go to uh, someone's wedding who uh, you had known forever and you were driving 50 miles, you could be in a car crash. But that wouldn't mean it was a real poor decision to go to the wedding. Let's say you were driving carefully and it just happened. It was a freak accident. So that's one of the problems with people thinking, where have they made a very, very poor decision? Because it's it's the quality of the decision before you know all the consequences that uh, is relevant to whether it was a poor decision or not. Well, that's interesting about bad decisions because yeah, I, I think we do tie it to the outcome, or we tie it to the we tie our bad decision to the road not taken. You know, the the, the girl that got away and, it, gee, if we'd only married her or, you know, something like, well, you never know what would have happened. It could have turned out to be horrible, but, but we have a tendency to, to make that, the, the thing we didn't do, look so much better because it never happened. Yes, I think, think that happens. And it's just this distinction between a good decision and a good outcome of the decision are different, but that's not well understood, and it's very natural to, when something bad happens, to say, oh boy, I really messed that up and made a poor decision. But it might not have been a poor decision. Any decision you make just about can have poor outcome. You could go to the a, a top school, you've got all the skills to be there, and something happened that it's just a disaster. Not a poor decision. It's unfortunate, and that's the way 
decision-making is. There's no guarantees on it. And also, not choosing an alternative is, of course, making a decision, too. Well, it's interesting, when you think about it, that the decisions you make are the things that steer your life, so it's important to pay attention to the process you use to make them. Yes. And again, if you go back to the very key point, the only way to influence anything is by your decisions. That includes the decision to do nothing. Should suggest to people, I would like to make some of these decisions a little more carefully because that's the way I can improve my life. And it's not selfish, I should say. What you want to improve your life could be in your life is to contribute to others. And uh, so improving your life is if you get in position where you're helping a lot of other people too. It's whatever you define it as, but it's not a selfish notion to want a high-quality life. Well, it's a really interesting and insightful way of looking at how we make decisions, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. Ralph Keeney has been my guest. He's been studying and teaching decision-making for some time now at Duke University, the University of Southern California, and he is author of the book, Give Yourself a Nudge, Helping Smart People Make Smarter Personal and Business Decisions. And there is a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Somewhere in your house is most likely a box that contains old VHS videotapes. And someday, you've probably said, you'll get those transferred to some digital format. Well, someday, we'll either be here soon or may have already passed. Every analog tape has a lifespan, and when it is over, it is over. Magnetic recording tape, if properly taken care of, can last 20 plus years. And proper care includes not stacking them or storing them flat, but on their ends, and not exposing them to heat and handling them with care. But sooner or later, they will no longer play. The tape will deteriorate into dust, and that will be the end. So the sooner you attempt to transfer those VHS tapes to digital, the better. You could put them on DVD, but even DVDs won't last forever. However, they will last a lot longer than VHS tapes. Estimates now are that a well-stored DVD will last 100 to 200 years. And that is something you should know. I'm sure you know somebody who would enjoy this podcast just as much as you. So take a moment and share it with a friend. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.